when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be reflecting on the surprise resignations of Ministers David Davis and Boris Johnson, as well as the release of their big Brexit white paper. Plus, we'll be looking at Donald Trump's Brexit intervention and the state of that good old special relationship. I'm delighted to be joined by our Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, Economics Commentator Martin Wolfe and World Affairs Commentator Gideon Rackman. Thank you all for joining. And as ever, if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Where to begin? It's certainly been a very long week in Westminster. Things kicked off with a bang thanks to the surprise quitting of David Davis, the Brexit secretary. He simply said he couldn't stomach the Prime Minister's vision for leaving the EU. He was swiftly followed next day by Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, who claimed that the Brexit dream is dying. A couple more junior ministers followed, but the government stumbled on. It released its white paper outlining the Chequers strategy with lots of detail about its vision for the future relationship between the the UK and the EU. Jim Picard, that Monday when David Davis resigned seems quite a long time ago by one recording now, but it is worth reflecting the departure of two cabinet ministers plus a lot of their aides was a big challenge to Theresa May. And, you know, she's actually, as ever, got through the week. And as we often say on this podcast, the prime minister's inherent weakness is actually her strength in this case. Exactly. And there has indeed been a carnival of chaos, even more than we've been used to in the last couple of years. But I've been in the lobby for quite a long time and I remember when loads of ministers resigned under Gordon Brown. And yet, if you were determined to stay in number 10 and if there's no obvious viable alternative, it's fascinating how much blood you can wade through in the words of Shakespeare and Macbeth. The thing that's really struck me throughout all this week, Jim, is that there's just no plan for anything. No plan for changing Brexit, no plan for removing Mrs May, and no plan for forcing her to change her direction because the Eurosceptic MPs I've spoken to this week say it's not about Mrs May's personality or her leadership, it's about checkers. We want to change checkers. And if she drops that, then she's fine. But if she doesn't, she'll be in trouble. But yet again, there's been still no real alternative. Exactly. I mean, the, the parliamentary arithmetic... I think shifted the significance of David Davis and Boris Johnson resigning is that that would have really liberated the Tory Eurosceptics to oppose Theresa May and for the first time in a long time I felt that actually there could seriously be a parliamentary stalemate because it's not obvious where she can get a majority for her plan it's definitely not obvious that there's a majority for no deal and there's not a majority for staying in the EEA There's also not a majority for reversing Brexit. So it really, really does feel like paralysis at the moment. And obviously Theresa May does have her plan. The way I'd say at the moment is use a contemporary football analogy. It's a bit like a semi-final where we have the sort of 
anti-EU Tory MPs fighting on one side and we have the business-friendly pro-EU Tory MPs fighting on the other side. But there's still the final we have to get to, which is whatever May can cobble together from the smoking ashes of her checkers plan, she has to go and negotiate it with Brussels. So really is going to be quite a chaotic few months ahead. Miranda Green, what did you make of all the events this week? Because when we looked at the Chequers Summit, when you were hosting the podcast last week while I was away, the prospect of resignations was on the horizon. But I don't think anyone really thought people were seriously going to quit simply because it would be such a destabilising thing. And David Davis in particular had threatened to quit, I think, six times before actually heading towards the exit door. And Boris Johnson, again, had missed many opportunities to leave on a point of principle. And actually left in a sort of slightly dishonourable way because it looked as if he had no real choice but to leave. And again, in his resignation letter, which I've heard MPs call petulant and self-indulgent, whereas David Davis genuinely seemed to say, I fought for my vision of Brexit, it's not happening, so I have to go. Well, I think you're quite right to highlight that sort of psychodrama aspect of it. And yet again, you know, the whole nation is playing out its fate through the personalities and internecine warfare of the Conservative Party. But I think on those resignations, part of it was to do with the fact that Downing Street rather foolishly kind of abandoned basic psychology and decided they could bully and humiliate Eurosceptic opponents into shutting up, staying on board, etc. And that has gradually looked more and more unwise as the days have gone on. I think that on a deeper level, though, they have a really fundamental problem with the Chequers deal. The parliamentary arithmetic, Jim has explained brilliantly. But, you know, it is very flawed, the compromise they've come up with. And the problem they've got, it seems to me, is that both the Eurosceptics don't like the deal and actually quite a lot of the Remainers don't like the deal. And there are a lot of people on both sides saying this is the worst of all possible worlds. So they've tried to come up with something that's a middle way and actually satisfies no one. And I think that's why it might not last until the next crunch pint in October because it'll be picked away at on both sides. And also this idea that the Tory grassroots might be very, very unhappy. I think that's actually more dangerous for her than anything else. And there are a couple of MPs, Peter Bone, Andrew Jenkins, arch Eurosceptics, who when earlier this week they stood up and said to Mrs May, you know, here are the thousands of emails I've had saying betrayal, betrayal, this isn't what I voted for. Peter Bone saying, we won't have anyone knocking on doors for the Tory party if this goes on. It looked a bit hysterical when they said it. A few days later, how the Tory party at large reacts is looking a lot more dangerous for number 10. Yeah, and in a kind of macro political level, what you're seeing here is you're seeing the toxification of the Tory party by senior Tories. So if they'd come out and said, this is a great Brexit deal, it's a great compromise, I think a lot of the country or the Leave voters could have tolerated it and they would have had Nigel Farage on the sidelines chucking bricks at the agreement. But when you have people responsible for it, such as David Davis and Boris Johnson, not directly responsible for it, but the former Foreign Secretary, when you have them saying it's a pile of rubbish or the T word from Boris, then it just makes it so much harder to sell it. But what that means is people who voted Leave are starting to think the Tory party aren't delivering the Brexit they wanted. And this is really self-inflicted political wound. And the person who looks happy this week, the only person who looks happy this week is Nigel Farage, because this is a kind of lifeline for those who've made a political living out of saying that the rest of the political establishment is trying to stitch up compromises. And he's the only person speaking for the true will of the people. And he can have that role again if they go down this ultra compromise route. We just need to actually clarify what the Chequers deal was, because uh, the district won't 
unclear when we did the podcast last week. So essentially, what the government is proposing is they call a free trade goods area with the EU, which essentially is remaining aligned to the EU on all goods trade, essentially staying in the customs union, and essentially still keeping jurisdiction of the ECJ. So Downing Street would be very quick to say the red lines aren't being crossed. We are still leaving the institutions of the EU, the single market, the customs union, and the jurisdiction of the ECJ. But it's more in spirit that it seems to have been broken now. And the big complaint that I've heard from Brexiters this week, Jim, is they essentially say, if there's going to be any deal with the EU, it's going to have to have the backstop in. This is this idea that if in lieu of another agreement, the UK, Northern Ireland will have to remain in the customs union and the single market to protect that border. Now, that means a border down the Irish Sea. That's unacceptable to any British government, but that's going to be in any deal we sign with the EU. So essentially, if they agree to this, it means we can never diverge. And the Downing Street spin has been, oh, a future parliament could choose to diverge, but there would be consequences. But they're the same consequences we face now. So Eurosceptic is saying, actually, there's no sovereignty in this deal, no choice. In fact, it's essentially just saying we're going to have to stay close to the EU forevermore. No, exactly right. And the Eurosceptics, to be fair, are are right to be sceptical about the customs backstop because it has been put in there in a way that it does keep us roughly in the status quo in terms of customs should the new FCA facilitated customs agreement not take off and the technology is never made to work but I think what people need to realise is is that they talk about our ability to strike deals with other countries notably the US I mean that would involve us aligning in a regulatory manner with the US for example on the notorious chlorinated chicken and hormone beef that we keep coming back to there are no trade deals with the EU or indeed with anyone else where you don't have some of this kind of alignment and interestingly someone at Greenpeace this week got hold of through FOI of document from the Indian government looking at the potential trade negotiations between Britain and India. And there you see India insisting on various shifts in regulation on things like chemicals and agriculture. You can't get something for nothing when it comes to these trade deals. And I think people aren't quite grasping that yet. There are these hard choices to make, Miranda, and I think that the whole point is compromise. You know, Theresa May said this is going to be a sovereign choice that we make to remain aligned because it's the right thing. But the reality is that the mansion house approach failed, that that was essentially saying to you, let's do about mutual equivalence. You have your rules, we'll have our rules, and we'll smile and nod to each other and go off happily down the path. The EU has totally failed to engage with that approach. So essentially, the checkers plan is saying, okay, we need to go softer, gentler, and closer. And the real big question now is, are they going to engage with that? Well, that is one of the big questions. If it survives this plan as the UK position, which is extremely debatable. I mean, there were quite warm, muted responses from the EU. But, you know, our colleagues tell us that behind closed doors in Brussels, it's not such a warm welcome. And I think also the problem is that it just doesn't solve the UK political fix. And until you've done that, you're not really genuinely negotiating on behalf of the UK. I think that is really quite fundamental. If you had put on the ballot paper on June the 23rd, 2016, do you want to remain a full member of the EU where you're making the decisions about the common rules that we all have for, for example, food safety, clean beaches, workers' rights, etc.? Or do you want to come out and have an association agreement where the EU will continue to make all the regulations under which we live, except for fisheries and agriculture, but we won't have any say in the rules? You know, which do you think would have won? So I think it's totally fundamental. And I'd be amazed if we managed to 
have constructive negotiations on the basis mm. laid out this week. And they're also very uncomfortable about the idea of having a sort of customs deal on goods, but splitting out the services and going, going our own way on financial services and other types of services. They just don't like that cherry-picking approach, do they? Well, they don't. And we should mention that Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, wrote us a piece in the FT this week in which he tried to explain why services and financial services have not been made part of this checkers deal. And he writes, this is not about prioritising goods over services. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but if you have to write that in your article, you have prioritised goods over services. And that doesn't solve our economic fix either. And just to pile in on the criticism for the checkers deal, Jim, one of the things that Conservatives have said is that services 80% of the British economy and there was not a huge amount in the white paper or agreed in checkers about services. It was very much focused on goods trade and I guess there's all sorts of reasons for that. Part of it is the Northern Ireland question. Part of it is that it's manufacturing bases in parts of the country that voted leave and you do end up seeing this potential dynamic where services and financial services in particular end up getting a very hard Brexit whereas the rest of the country gets a much softer Brexit which contributes a lot less to to our overall growth and prosperity. So it's a quite an odd situation to end up in. Although, to be fair, the paper does set out a kind of equivalence regime or supercharged equivalence regime for financial services. Equivalence plus, plus, plus. Yeah, but the square mile did not respond particularly positively. I mean, it all feeds into this idea that no one was really that happy with what was put forward on Thursday. Now, finally, of course, because we had some departures, we have some new cabinet ministers this week. There was a mini reshuffle to replace Boris Johnson, David Davis and the knock-on effects. The most obvious person to get promoted was Jeremy Hunt, who is our new Foreign Secretary, Miranda. And we've talked a lot about his tenure at the Health Department. He's the longest serving health secretary ever. He managed to get that record in, got this £20 billion a year for the health service, although we don't quite know where it's coming from, aside from the back of the sofa. But essentially, he's now got a new position, which is a lot less pretty contentious. And people have been saying in Westminster, well, he can't be as bad as the man who came before him. But it definitely looks like another notch on his leadership ambitions. Well, it's a really, really good idea, of course, when you take a new job to follow somebody who was terrible at it, because you're going to look good. So Jeremy Hunt is going to be well welcomed all the British embassies across the world with open arms after having to put up with visits from Boris Johnson embarrassing the nation. But I think it is an interesting move because, of course, also Jeremy Hunt is probably the most high-profile late convert to Brexit, you know, his In supposed public, public Damascene conversion to the religion of leave. And I think that also him leaving that NHS job at such a crucial time, handing over to Matt Hancock, who actually seemed to like his job at DCMS and has been cruelly yanked out of that to deal with how to preserve the NHS after Hunt. It's a slightly odd, very limited reshuffle. It's quite male, I'd just like to point out, not promotions for any women. And actually that mass picture of the cabinet table when the reshuffle was completed it didn't look like the modern UK. It's still a huge problem for the Conservative Party. And then, of course, the other person who got a big promotion this week, Jim, was Dominic Raab, who is the new Brexit secretary. And again, he's someone who's very close to Michael Gove, which people have been remarking on in Conservative circles as the two key power players now on Brexit within the cabinet. And Michael Gove has taken a much more emollient approach towards checkers. You know, he was the person outselling it the heaviest last weekend when all these ruptions were going on. So Dominic Raab has taken that job. But how much power is he really going to have? Because the big reason David Davis resigned was because he felt he wasn't being listened to. Well, he wasn't being listened to because the Prime Minister ignored his personal white paper and went for the checkers option. Dominic Raab has now got to essentially sell this while keeping the Brexiters happy within the Tory party. Exactly. And just to start with Michael Gove, 
I've thought for quite some time that after his very famous sort of embarrassment where he knifed Boris Johnson in the back when he went for the leadership himself, having been Boris's campaign manager, and this gave him a bit of a Rasputin-type reputation, I thought when Theresa May brought him back into the cabinet, he would be super loyal in the same way that Peter Mandelson was super loyal to Gordon Brown when he was brought back from the political wilderness. And he propped up Gordon through all those crazy months where ministers were dropping like flies. So you're right, Dominic Raab is very close to Gove, wouldn't quite call him a protégé, but it's probably not a instance that he got the job and he's a real hardliner he was on the board of vote leave he also helped found leave means leave this organization which is pushing for a hard brexit and for the last few days we have these emails popping through our inbox every day saying checkers is a disgrace it's a sellout and it's by the organization set up by our new brexit secretary but dominic raab is a former lawyer he's very bright he's got the details at his fingertips he's quite a tough cookie i think you're right though that ollie robbins is the person still leading negotiations on behalf of the prime minister and what rob has done is he has taken personal advancement at the risk of losing a lot of goodwill among his fellow eurosceptics and finally one very quick last question for you both is mrs may going to face a leadership challenge by our next podcast i don't think they're going to hold off until the autumn at least i think not because they don't have a, an alternative either plan or personality And if all that wasn't enough, Donald Trump came to the UK. The US president arrived for his first proper visit on Thursday and it hasn't quite gone to plan. Any efforts to show that the so-called special relationship between Britain and America was alive and well was undermined by the president's bombastic remarks about Brexit and Theresa May. He dived straight into the debate by lambasting her checker strategy and said he would have done it much better. And for good luck, he said that Boris Johnson was a great guy and would make a fine prime minister. So Gideon Rackman, this visit has been delayed for quite a long time because Downing Street and the whole government has been worried about what would happen, what the protest would be, and if it would go off message. I think based on what's happened so far, we're recording before his press conference with Theresa May, I think their reservations were probably correct. Absolutely. I mean, a Trump visit was always going to be difficult. And the coincidence of it appearing in the week that Boris Johnson resigned, that the Brexit white paper came out, made it actually explosive. And Trump, in trademark fashion, rather than trying to be diplomatic and stay out of domestic politics, has waded in with both feet. And one of those feet has given the Prime Minister a good kicking. And it's pretty bad news for her. The thing that surprised me, his remarks about Brexit were very specific for Donald Trump, because I think most people would agree he's generally not a policy guy. He tends to make big, broad brush statements about areas where he thinks the US should be doing better was getting ripped up or what have you. But he said about this particular thing, this deal, which only emerged properly at the weekend, was bad for Britain and was not what people voted for, which did sort of surprise me. You know, it was not just a general assertion. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that Trump actually has always been very closely connected to the hard Brexit camp. If you remember, he suggested that Nigel Farage should become Britain's ambassador to the United States He said he was going to be during the campaign. I remember him talking quite a lot about Brexit and saying that that was a presage of what he was going to do in the United States. So this is an issue that kind of in his bones he has followed. Presumably somebody from that camp briefed him. And technically, I think he's actually quite on sure ground. I mean, I think he is right that if Britain stays in very close alignment with the EU in the way that the white paper suggests, then it would make it much harder to have a trade deal with America. Not impossible, 
but it would constrain what Britain could offer. There's no doubt about that. I was just about to come to you on that point, Martin, because he's very much, you know, grist to the Brexiters mill on this because they've been saying the big problem with Mrs May's checkers proposals are that they curtail the ability to do trade deals because essentially goods regulation would remain exactly where it is and that limits the ability of other countries, particularly Australia, New Zealand and America, who would want access to the UK's agricultural markets. So what Donald Trump said on this strikes me as being pretty accurate. Well, the problem is mainly, I think, here about agriculture. There's not an enormous problem, I think, with goods. It's unlikely that we will be doing a goods trade deal with the US in which we have regulatory alignment on cars and things like that. We still would have our own regulations in these areas, and they would be, in this case, European rather than our own. But we're not going to align with the Americans on this. But food standards are really quite problematic because the Europeans will clearly insist absolutely on European standards here if we're going to have the sort of deal that Theresa May has in mind. And the US standards are really radically different. And I think it's pretty clear the Europeans simply wouldn't accept free trade with us if things which are really very difficult to control, like chicken and things like that, are circulating freely. So, yes, it would rule out a good that included agriculture with the US. My own personal view, for what it's worth, is such a deal was never doable anyway because the British public would not wear having US standards for food. And therefore, the deals that, and this is true in many areas, the deals that the Brexiters imagine will be effective for us were in fact in large part an illusion and we're not really going to lose anything. When you look at the various analysis, the idea of having a UK-US comprehensive free trade deal was mostly symbolic about Britain pulling itself away from Europe and projecting onto a global stage because most of the projections say the economic gains of that trade deal would A, not outweigh any losses with the EU and B, would be small percentage points of GDP over quite some years, if I'm right. Well, very insignificant. And I do think one can't really discuss our wonderful, glorious free trade deal with America when we know that the one wonderful, glorious free trade deal that the US has had now for decades with NAFTA, it's blowing up and including making one of their main targets, Canada, which has an even closer relationship symbolically, linguistically, culturally than we do. So the idea that the US is a safe haven for trade deals under Trump seems to me completely farcical. Well, this is chimed nicely, Gideon, with the, the introspection we always like to do in this country about the special relationship and how important it is to our national standing. And Theresa May you know, said a lot of this on Thursday evening when they had a big state dinner full of pomp and circumstance at Blenheim Palace, which is the ancestral home of Winston Churchill's family. When you look at this, it does look very difficult to say that there is any kind of special relationship because I'm sure there will try and be some efforts to repair what's been done. But it doesn't seem there's any particularly strong ties between Theresa May and Donald Trump, and he certainly can't be relied on for any close economic or security ties based on the way that he acted and the things he said at the NATO summit earlier this week. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the interesting things is that, that Brexit and Trump were very closely paired in people's minds. They happened within six months of each Steve other. Steve Bannon said this, Absolutely, actually, yeah. But I think that Britain took Brexit under May in a very different direction from the way that the Trump administration has gone. And so it's now clear that actually Britain is in a much more conventional, if you like, in, in the sort of Western mode that we've got used to over the last 30, 40 years, whereas Trump is really a revolutionary. And I don't mean that in a complimentary way. And so actually, there's a huge divergence. And this is particularly problematic for Britain, because we, through Brexit, voted essentially to blow up one pillar of our foreign policy, the EU. And therefore, the second pillar, the United States, was even more important. But Trump then blew that up. So we're completely unmoored. I think one question I have about all this is, 
is it such a good card for the Brexiters? And here it goes in two directions. I mean, the simple truth is that however Donald Trump plays in America, he's hugely unpopular in Britain. Only after it, Vladimir Putin, it, yes. the most least unpopular it, politician. So, uh, having Trump on your side against the British government and everybody else here is, I think, not a real calling card. I mean, being, as it were, Donald Trump's stooge is not going to improve, in my view, Boris Johnson's no, selling power in the UK. On the contrary, better or worse, and I think for better, the British are pretty horrified. Of course, we also know, and this is the core of it, special relationship or not, and I haven't believed in this for years, is the US is our most important ally. Having Donald Trump lead the US is a staggeringly important event for us, and uh, it's going to make la- our lives of any British leader who can conceivably be leader and run this country very, very difficult, just as it is for all the Europeans. Yeah, because I, mean, I think that, you know, you can say, uh, indeed, as you just did, that, well, a special relationship is over. But the point is that the special relationship is embedded in institutions and in institutional relationships and in our whole security architecture. NATO is a great example well, of NATO, that. but but actually with Britain, there was a special element as well, which yeah. was that the intelligence sharing, the five eyes, is critical to the way that Britain's conducted itself in the world. And also Britain's nuclear deterrent is very, very closely tied up with the United States to the extent that people even question whether it is an independent nuclear deterrent. Could it work without American cooperation? So it's not that simple to say, oh, well, we don't like this new US president. We're going to do something different because that, in a way, analogous to the way that we're ripping up our economic relationships with the EU, you would be undermining the whole structure of British foreign policy and defence. The problem Theresa May's got, though, Martin, is there's been lots of protests up and down the UK this week with the infamous baby balloon flying over Parliament. Parliament Square, people protesting against Donald Trump. But in a way, she has to try and separate the man from the office. You know, she cannot not engage with America or not engage with the US president for the next three or eight years or however long he's going to be in power for. It strikes me as very interesting how she's managed it compared to Emmanuel Macron. And I know they're in a very different situation. Mr. Macron is a stronger personal and political standing in his own country. But he seems to have managed to deal with it better than she has because she went to the White House very early on before anyone really knew what was going on with the Trump presidency and was sort of bitten by the Muslim travel ban that came in pretty much as she was taking off from DC and ever since then has had to deal with I think what Gideon just put very well with the fact is they've both had these populist upsurgings Britain's doing it in a conventional way Donald Trump is not. Yes I think the problem here is uh, that because of her current position as the Prime Minister of a country undergoing a divorce from the EU, she's much needier and he knows it. And Mr. Trump despises neediness and loves kicking people. So that makes her difficult. I think, though I can't be sure of it, that the fact that she's a woman doesn't help. Macron has done the sort of macho stuff with him and he obviously detests Angela Merkel too and it seems to me that might be part of it. But the fundamental reality, as we agree, is he is the head of our most important ally. We have somehow to deal with it. But because of what Theresa May is trying to do, which is not to go full hard Brexit, rightly I think, because Mr Trump is in sympathy Let's be clear with the xenophobes and nationalists in Europe. That's the people he likes. He's not going to like her. And that is going to be very difficult for her. But in my view, it will be difficult for almost any conceivable prime minister of our country. We have been in not dissimilar situations before, but this is clearly the biggest problem of this kind we've had since the war. 
And finally, Gideon, obviously Mr. Trump's had quite the week beginning with his appearance at the NATO summit where he sort of essentially just went around every country trying to force more money out of them to at least hit their spending targets of 2% or even double them. He said he was suggesting it should be 4% in some cases, a bombastic visit to the UK, and then he's off to meet Vladimir Putin. There is just this general sense that, you know, Trumpism is just becoming more and more intense in terms of how it looks towards those established institutions, whether it be its relationship with the UK or with the rest of the world. How should the rest of the world react and deal with this? Because it's a very big question. It's very easy to look and analyse the problems that we've been discussing in the office just today. Like, what can you actually do to deal and cope with this? Well, I mean, I think that they shouldn't do, unfortunately, what the policy that Britain is currently stuck with, which is leave the EU, because it becomes even more important that the remaining liberal powers, Western powers, stick together. And incredible as it may seem, they now have to work not just against a threat from Russia, but also a threat from the United States to those institutions that they've built up together. Now, you know, the US is a very different kind of inverted commas threat, but I don't think you can gainsay the fact now that the Trump administration is working to undermine things that are very important to our interests. Therefore, we, the UK, along with countries like France, Germany, Canada, Australia, who still have a fairly conventional view of how the world should work, need to work together. Collectively, we can push back and we can defend our interests. But the policy of Trump and of Russia and of China is to look at Europe and divide and rule. Yes, I I agree with this. Historians, I suspect, will regard the Brexit vote and the subsequent debates in this context as a simply stupendous historical blunder. And I am actually astonished at the small extent to which anybody, it appears, in the governing party, in the government, has been prepared to confront the evident reality that the world has changed so profoundly that the context in which this decision was made no longer is relevant. We are going out into this wider world, liberated to some degree from the EU, and the wider world has become in profound ways more hostile than any of us could imagine. I mean, Brexit was designed for a world that no longer exists. And on that note, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Miranda, Gideon and Martin for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Molly Mintz. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.